Cyber Insiders from Adama. Hello and welcome to Cyber Insiders, the podcast that shines a light on what it's really like to work in the world of cybersecurity. I'm John Maynard, Chief Executive at Adama. And I'm Joe Gilhooley, Chief Marketing Officer. And in this episode, we're delighted to welcome Sarah Dyer-Hall, the Director of Digital Data and Technology at DrinkAware. Sarah is an experienced digital director, previously with charities Relate and Beat Bullying, and has worked with a number of digital agencies, including her own. She has a first-class degree in 3D design from Buckinghamshire New University. Sarah joined DrinkAware in 2019 and is responsible for DrinkAware's digital data and technology work streams, including the DrinkAware website, applications, tools, SEO and digital innovation. She's won a number of awards, 17 in fact, in digital marketing and innovation and has considerable experience in digital strategy, including the development of impact frameworks. She's an LGBTQ plus supporter and is currently doing the Alcohol Free Challenge. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So before we start, um, I have it on good authority that you're quite keen on music. Can you give us a little bit of an idea of how eclectic your taste is? My taste ranges from house music, which is my really big passion, through to jazz, through to um, a lot of kind of modern stuff like Krungbin and Alalaz and all that sort of stuff. Oh, I feel like I need to uh, uh, look on Spotify. What's the first choice when you're in the car? First choice in the car is probably some sort of Krungbing mix, I would say. Something nice and, you know, rolling, gentle, not too heavy, doesn't distract me too much, keeps my eye, you know, focused on what I'm doing. Brilliant. I shall be having a look at some of these recommendations on Spotify. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about your career journey from a creative role leading digital marketing and product marketing campaigns? How did you end up in your current role as the Director of Digital Data and Technology for Drinkaware? Oh, it's a bit of a convoluted story, really. So um, when I finished college, um, I did some summer work in a, in a local disaster recovery unit and um, helping to digitise the business with some other kind of graduates that were doing the same thing. And because of this kind of problem-solving, classic design thinking, I could see quite a lot of ways in which I could add value to that business. And I learned a lot about the programming side through working quite closely with the consultants that um, were working on the business. And basically, um, it was in the late 80s when, you know, web pages were really, really basic. It was like, you know, news groups, basic web pages, all that kind of stuff. And I learned how to code. I learned DOS. I learned HTML. And I, I instinctively knew at that point that there were some big things coming out of the internet, even though it was in its really nascent form at that time. So I learned everything I could about computing. So I went from there, got myself onto a um, an MSc in computing and design, and then basically set myself up as a consultant after that, moved into CAD, did a lot of 3D visualization, did a lot of creative stuff that was blending my creative and my... Um, Uh, digital skills, my technical skills, but I kept this kind of thing of of website building going and that became my sort of main business. Did a bit of lecturing, computing and design for various universities and kind of, you know, hardened my skills really, my skill sets in that sort of um, field. And I think getting that deep understanding of, of how things actually work, how they all link together is really important. So I worked on a few big charity accounts, um, got very interested in the um, impact of the social side of stuff, social impact. And then um, with various design agencies that I that I worked with um, in the 90s, became increasingly interested in those charity accounts that we were servicing and could see the kind of real social value of what we were doing and then made the full sort of tip from being agency side into working with um, charities in about 2007. 
So Sarah, what advice would you give to the aspiring woman, girl, looking at a STEM career, looking at a, a route into technology, given that background? Um, I would say develop your technical skills, really learn from the ground up, keep learning, keep reading, stay up to date with current developments in tech um, and apply that kind of current thinking in your role. Make, make use of that thinking in your role. Don't be afraid of people challenging you. Actually, actively, you know, stand up to the challenge, have it with people, um, especially men, um, because it will happen um, disproportionately with men. And as long as you have that kind of healthy, fair, equitable, well-evidenced kind of um, challenge, um, you're on you're on a good sort of footing. And just be confident that you can advocate for yourself, that you know you can stand up and believe in yourself, and learn from other women as well. I learned a lot from other women in in the sector, although there weren't that many um, around to learn for. To be to be fair, but they they are you know good advocates and they'll be good supporters and good mentors for you if you can if you can get a mentorship from another woman in tech I think that's a really really good relationship to build I think the one thing that I've learned um, in terms of kind of uh, leadership is is working with people how to work with people effectively it's singularly the most important skill set developing that emotional intelligence learning to work with teams coach coach teams, encourage teams, support teams. You are nothing without your team. So if you if if you have a team that performs well, you will you will build and you'll develop their talent and, and together you'll do amazing things, hopefully that ha- have a meaningful impact on society. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, Drinkaware, what you do, what's your what type of digital estate you look after? At Drinkaware we're working with others, um, funders, industry funders, partners, other not for profits and charities to reduce alcohol harm. And what's interesting at the moment for us is that we're entering a new strategic period um, with an emphasis in working in partnership with others to deliver systemic change around alcohol harm at scale. So that sounds quite sort of straightforward, but actually in practice, for us, it's quite a big pivot to move from where we've been to becoming a sort of leading voice in conversations around alcohol and to use our voice uh, to stand up for people who experience alcohol harm. So it's quite a sizable shift. So in terms of how users engage with our digital estate, it's very much about how we can help them make informed choices about alcohol. And if they need to find help and support, um, we can do that through our website. So our website's basically the front door. And if you think about it as a house, we've got our digital assessment tools, drinking assessment tools, our mobile app, our shop, chatbot, various other things. So I'm responsible for the the tech infrastructure, the digital infrastructure and the data security, which is obviously why I'm, why I'm sitting here. And then we have um, you know, a whole bunch of products basically that we use to help engage users and help them make better decisions about their drinking. It sounds like a really a really broad role actually and, and I think you you know as you've mentioned IT and cybersecurity both fall under your remit. Drinkaware handles a significant volume of PPI data. So what would be the potential ramifications of a of a cyber incident? Yeah, we do handle a lot of uh personal information and highly sensitive information because this uh, the tools that we have online are collecting people's um, you know drinking behaviors drinking information and I'm really conscious in my role uh, which is of this which is why I've been really focused on on the d- data security part since I've been in that role um, 
I mean, like many organisations, we've kind of uh, experienced some, you know, pretty small scale, you know, internal incidents. Um, and whilst I, I, you know, I've preferred them not to have happened, clearly, um, on the plus side, we've learned a lot from those those events, better responses, better opportunities to improve our processes and our systems. But in answer to your question, the most obvious thing that springs to mind is is, is the reputational risk. Um, if we were to experience something externally of, of the kind of nature that you're talking about, like a big data breach, um, it would massively put a hole in our um, in our brand. I mean, we've worked hard to build, you know, trust and integrity into our brand. Uh, and that gets wiped out overnight in the event that you have something that um, uh, happens to compromise um, customer data. Um, that would lead to less traffic to the website, less usage of our tools. Um, we wouldn't be able to meet our outcomes as a charity, basically. Um, and on top of that, our services are used by some of the most vulnerable people um, in society, and that would affect their ability to then trust us. So a lot of it's brand related. Um, but then there are obvious repercussions in terms of, um, you know, the financial side of stuff, fines imposed by ICO. That's one route. It, uh, revenue stuff like less um, traffic to our shop. You know, we might not be able to actually continue with our e-commerce products. Um, our funders wouldn't be impressed. We'd have to be a lot of, uh, you know, damage limitation with um, and, and, and considerable sort of stakeholder management with um, our industry partners if something happened. Our insurance premiums would probably go up. It's yeah. another thing to consider. And then um, with events like that, most of it's about the, the sheer amount of resource that is hoovered up internally. Um, I've been in other roles where I've been sort of presiding over over fairly significant internal data breaches and they've taken up months of internal resource and that has a knock-on effect on you know delivering against what you know your normal sort of day-to-day organizational stuff um but in a worst case scenario um you know as a digital first business like many are these days um we could be in a place where we actually can't continue to operate and that's one of the reasons you know having a really good live uh, disaster recovery plan is so important and a clear understanding of what your roadmap is out of those types of scenarios and putting a lot of effort into, you know, good, strong, you know, business continuity planning. So just um, how do you make technology, digitization central and cybersecurity central to the charity's purpose, mission, you know, the strategy? Because we hear some organisations... Security is an afterthought. Um, technology might be needed to be dragged along or digitization dragged along. Other organizations you hear, you know, digitization is the lifeblood of the business. If mm-hmm. it doesn't happen, we die. You know, mm-hmm. how, what's, what's the, how, how do you make sure it's central to, to the charity? Well, it's, it's, it's planning and it's about building that consensus with um, your, other, your other colleagues at you know, senior level to make sure that they share that kind of collect, collective view on, on, on the importance of kind of cyber security underpinning your business. I mean, obviously, for um, a charity like ours, we have you know, risk management frameworks in place. And a big part of that risk management framework is uh, are the risks that um, I, 
I look after, if you if you like, in terms of the ones that are underpinning all of our tech and our digital estate. So it's it's it, it needs to be something where you build consensus with your colleagues and you make sure that you you plan it into your everyday activity and you plan it into your longer term roadmaps so that underpins pretty much everything that you do as a business. Yeah, I mean it's fascinating just listening to you, and you can. Um you can draw real synergies with other really highly targeted industries like healthcare just due, due to the sensitivity of the of material that you handle. But in your experience, why are attackers going after charities so, uh, you know, so in a, such a targeted fashion? And, and what are the threats that charity organisations are most concerned with? Kind of what does keep you up at night? Who really knows why they do what they do? I mean, it's it's very interesting. I'd love to sort of understand the you know the the, the psychological drivers behind people that do these things. I I mean, perhaps it's the assumption that you know charities have less data security in place um, than than you know more corporate or commercial organisations, um, which perhaps make them um, more vulnerable to attack. Um, most charities rely quite heavily on donor income. Um, threat actors, hackers, you know, they might view that, I guess, as an opportunity for financial gain, perhaps. Um, you know, as, as we said earlier on, in charities, we tend to hold a lot more of personal and sensitive data and information. And I would imagine some charities, especially smaller charities, don't have the resource to spend on shoring up their cybersecurity. And if they've got, you know, a sort of um, operational onus on delivering frontline services, the frontline services delivery will win over them, you know, spending money that they probably haven't got on, on, on putting, you know, extra time and resource into their cybersecurity. Um, and, and there's other things that that are at play there. If you think about stuff like um, a lot of smaller charities that make up our sector, because they make up a big part of our sector as well, um, they have, you know, bring your own device policies in place, which can leave them with, you know, this kind of ragtag and bobtail estate of, you know, users' computers that they're bringing in, and they haven't sorted out the endpoint security on these um um, devices, so it means that they've got a much greater, um, you know, surface attack basically, which is which is problematic for them. Um, there are other things as well, like um, hacktivism. You know, people acting with political intention, um, leaking sensitive information about um, various charities. Um, looking to sort of bring about some sort of reputational damage for 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 political reasons um but you know what i think it's the 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 biggest risk is interesting because i think it's actually our people our staff our employees um not just at drinkaware but in the in the sector that represent the the biggest issue and arguably the biggest defense by the same token because um, if you invest in your staff and you, you and you train them appropriately, um, it's the best single route, I think, to reducing that kind of attack surface, build confidence in them um, so that they know what to look out for, um, what to do if they see a phishing email, uh, changing passwords frequently, having decent passwords in place, having password vaults in place. And, you know, a lot of what I do is when I'm looking at the data security parts, cybersecurity parts of the business is thinking about those sorts of risks and working with our agencies to ensure that we're capturing those risks appropriately. We're mitigating for them in our risk frameworks. Um, and, you know, 
but as you said before, be, being the, the data protection officer and someone's responsible for this sort of stuff does keep you up at night sometimes. It really does. Well, I guess especially when you're you're driving innovation, new platforms, new processes, new ways of engaging with the customers that you know that you talked about. You're expanding or changing the attack surface, and so you've got to constantly keep on top of it. I think you led the ideation and creation of SaaS platforms, you know, for delivery of services, but also for for social uh, social care as well, social support as well. How, how did you think through the cybersecurity ramifications or potential impact of of that type of platform? From a development perspective, it's more about I think making sure that you have secure coding practices in place in the first place you have the appropriate standards and validation when you're developing um, software obvious obvious things like you know not leaving massive holes in your software where people can you know squirt sql into them or cross-site scripting that sort of stuff you know it's designing software with a secure um, considered architecture making sure that you've got personal data that's obfuscated from other parts of the um, architecture secure data storage encryption making sure your development team are actually living and breathing these types of practices and they're using security best practice when they're actually coding and establishing things like you know good code peer review for example that's that that's really important yeah so um you've mentioned that obviously you're a relatively small organization but with an absolutely huge reach um at what point did you decide to seek uh, external support or a partnership for cybersecurity and what was the driver behind that what prompted it so when I um, started at Drinkaware back in 2019, I was quickly aware of the fact that our data security was not as tight as it could be. There were a lot of areas that um, identified for you know potentially being quick wins for us. Um, there are a lot of processes that needed to be tightened up. Um, policy frameworks that that needed you know quite a critical review and much better oversight of uh what was happening kind of like over the fence between us and our IT and our digital suppliers and that kind of expanding um attack surface was a definite concern um at the time there were quite a few high profile events um like the Heroku security um Breach was a, which is a particular concern because we were using Heroku at the time, and we had um, various APIs that were linked into their software. So, I did stuff like you know put in place regular asset uh, register reviews. We conducted DPIAs, DPAs uh, with suppliers. I overhauled all the data policies, um, but I felt instinctively that there was a lot more that we could be doing. So, what? Um, I did was uh, was talking to a really good um, uh, trustee on our board at the time who um, had a lot of experience and was extremely helpful in helping me think through what our approach what might be and I did a bit of research and established that doing something like a cyber maturity assessment was probably actually the way for us to go even though we were a small organisation we needed to try and work out how we were going to um, work out our, our our attitude towards risk given our size given our budget um, and 
what we did was tender it out to various suppliers and we ended up, um, you know, working with Adama in the end, which has been, um, you know, a, a, a extremely um, helpful and powerful process for us as, as, a, as a small charity with a big reach, with a, you know, a big um, exposure to risk in that way because of our, our significant reach. So we've um, been really, really lucky to, I think, to, to work so well with you guys. I guess when when you've gone through that, you just look at the sheer breadth of the data protection, secure, cyber security role. How how much time do you think you spend, or how much effort do you think you spend on policy compliance related activities versus the sort of nuts and bolts of threat detection? Um, you know what I think um, it's it, the the data security part of my my job is. Is, is a much smaller part because I'm, I'm focused mostly on the kind of digital product side. So, um, you know, the, the balance of these things is, I, I couldn't really tell you if I, if, I, if I worked it out. I'd have to sit there and yep. do a bit of time and motion on it. But um, I, I think it's, a, it's an area that's not to be underestimated by any stretch of the imagination. And, you know, I mean, I give it considerable time and 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 thought and I do so with our suppliers and we work internally as much as possible with my colleagues to make sure that they're on the the front foot about stuff as well yeah, but, it's um, just you know blows your mind when you see sort of regulatory changes legal changes yeah. the the way the environment you have to operate in your attack surface is expanding so yeah. it brings other other regulatory frameworks other compliance needs so it just it's a big you know it's a sort of it occupies some of the conversations that we have with a number of customers mm -hmm. as, you have to do that stuff. That stuff's really good, but you has, have, actually have to protect and detect and yep. respond as well. It's almost like how, to what extent you you open things up because you you know this is all about balancing risk. And the more the the more you kind of you start to think you can kind of lock down, the more you go off down a rabbit hole and think actually yep. that's yep. a little bit too belts and braces for us. We have to kind of pull back a little bit and try and go well, you know, proportionally. Does that actually merit us spending all of that time and effort doing X activity? And you know that that's that's where it becomes you know a kind of evolving debate in terms of you know what parts of the um, you know the security and program do you actually adopt and which are the which are the critical ones, which are the high risk ones? It's just like working out any other roadmap basically, yeah. just prioritizing these things and just trying to work out where you're um, where you're where you're most vulnerable. And very much based on kind of a, a pragmatic framework, really, in terms of how you how you make those decisions yes absolutely I think probably last question for me actually what would be what would be the advice that you would give to someone who's responsible for the cyber security of their organization um, or, or being asked to be responsible or being asked to be responsible <laughs> even better <laughs> the daunting uh, you're being asked to do it yeah. well it's kind of like we've just been saying it's kind of a it's, it's kind of a living piece of work it's like a proactive living piece of work good cyber security it's always on there's no kind of off button um, I, I mean, I think one of the best places to start is just by understanding where your gaps are as a business. Um, try and take uh, a holistic overview of of your estate, uh, and not a piecemeal approach. Don't just go running around trying to, you know, 
fix X, Y, and Z. The whack-a-mole approach. The whack-a-mole, yes. Yeah. The whack-a-mole approach. No, that never works. Um, and try and work with your colleagues as much as possible because you need investment and, and kind of buy-in from other people that are working. Because let's face it, data security is not the sexiest thing on the planet. So people tend to switch off, in my experience, when you start talking about data. Um, so you've got to show them the value. You've got to evidence the value of that. But when they, un- when they understand those risks and threats, especially if they experience it for themselves, for example, that's always quite useful in many ways. Um, you can understand where the attitude to risk sits within the business and you can start prioritising then the work that you that, that um, will bring about the most benefit in terms of um, you know mitigating those different risks. Um, so coming back to what we were saying before about developing a plan, having a plan an approach um, that maps out your policies and your procedures, um, covers off all the, the usual suspects like regular audits, um, updates, security, patch, uh, security patches, um, pen tests, that sort of thing. I mean, always when I've been working with digital platforms, I've always been so on, you know, pen testing and vulnerability testing. Um, and it's, you know, making sure that those things are just not left because people do leave them or they just don't do them for years and they consider that, you know, every two years it's fine to do a pen test. That's just not acceptable. And people wonder then why, you know, software doesn't get patched and updated, uh, then you suddenly you've got all these holes everywhere. Um, but mostly it's about coming back to people. It's about investing in your people and making sure that they understand the risks, they they understand how it affects them in their daily work and making sure that they've got um, the confidence around data and they have the regular sort of training um, and access to training um, that they need in order to kind of build their awareness on data data topics because I think that actually transpires as being your biggest defence as an organisation if you've got the people on your side knowing confident how to handle things that's that's massively helpful quick note to all data security specialists it can be sexy new cryptographic methods and quantum computing <laughs> so uh, um, that's the only thing actually but, <laughs> but Sarah thank you uh, for joining us at Cyber Insiders um, thank you for everything that you do at Drinkaware we're delighted to work with you and partner with you it's a great charity for a, for a great cause and thanks for joining us thank you thank you Sarah Cyber Insiders untold stories from behind the cyber front line follow and rate on your podcast app Adama. Together, we've got this.